Hello and welcome to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. I'm Dino Varelli, founder and CEO of Project Purple, and we have another interview for you coming up with a very special guest after a few quick updates. It's crazy as we record this, it's the beginning of June and we're already halfway through 2023, which has been off to an amazing start. 2022 was a record year for us and we are so excited. Many of our fall marathons, crazy, we're talking about the fall, it's here in June, are already full with our Chicago, New York teams, completely sold out, but we do have spots. Still, we have a couple left in our Berlin Marathon. We have Twin Cities and our Detroit Marathon. We also have our Chicago Fall Half Marathon team along with a new race here in Connecticut, the Sono Half Marathon and 5K with spots available. We also have many of our virtual events. Uh, we have our Dino's Double coming up here in June. We have our Work Harder happening in August. And just recently, we came off of our third annual Charity Golf Classic, which was a record year. We look forward to being back next year for the fourth annual Charity Golf Classic. To learn more about all these great things, how to get involved. We are actually launching events in Connecticut with our urban repelling over the edge happening in September. But to learn about all these things and how you can get involved here at Project Purple, visit our website at www.projectpurple.org. I think I added a W in there, but that's the caffeine talking. And please follow us wherever you follow on social. Follow us at Project Purple to stay up to date with all the latest and greatest. Without further ado, let's meet our special guest coming to us all the way from across the, as we like to say, I don't know who's ever said this. I don't think I'd like to say this, but they always say across the pond. It's not a pond. It's a very, as my son would say, dad, it's a very large mass of water. It's a lot bigger than a pond, but coming to us from the UK, pancreatic cancer survivor, Dan Godley. Dan, welcome to the Project Purple Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Happy to be here. It's a very big, cold body of water. <laughs> yes. It's not a pond. <laughs> yes, yes. It's a, well, I, I, I got to do some research on that. Who called that from across the pond? I know that's like a cliche, but it, yeah, it is not yeah. a pond. It, it's, got, it's definitely got some Englishness about it, though. I feel like we, we have quite a like weird, dry, sarcastic wit. So even if it was coined by an American. I feel like they did it in the esteem of the British. I think it's good. Yeah, yeah, that is true. That is true. And I laugh because you 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 hit the nail right on top of the head with that one. Yeah. Dad, I want I want to welcome you to the podcast and we playing catch up here before we hit record. So, uh you're a runner. Uh yep. you're in yep. you're in the UK. Um how yep. old are you, Dan? So, I'm 30. I was 28 when I was diagnosed, but I'm 30 now. Um, for those watch, uh, for those listening, for clearly, if you're watching this on YouTube, uh, you can tell Dan's a young guy there. So that's why I want to know your age. Um, yeah. You're on holiday. Uh, for those that are not familiar with that term, that means vacation. Uh, yeah. For those uh, here in the US, we call it vacation. I, I think... Uh, our European friends call it holiday, which makes it sound, I think, a lot better. Like when people say you're on holiday, it has a better term than vacation. Yeah. I'm just going to put that out there. You have to smile as you say holiday. It like forces your face to do it. Whereas vacation is quite long. Yeah. It takes a while to say, you know. Well, I also feel too, 
like here in the US, I can say, so this mindset of like people really look forward to the national holidays yeah. um, where I don't know how many people like, I know many friends, I'm not going to name names, but like, you know, they go on vacation and they dread vacation, you know, for whatever reason. And I'm like, wait a minute, like, you're not going to be working, but like, but you know, holiday has just more of a positive tone to it. Right. Yeah. I think, I think so. Yeah. So it's just, uh, well, thank you for taking the reason why we're not here to debate vacation or holiday, whichever sounds better, but (laughs) the fact that you took time to be with us today on the podcast on your own free time where you're, you know, you're, you're supposed to be enjoying life and, and everything that you're doing is really special for us. And, and all jokes aside, um, you know, we were talking before too, I, I think the power of this podcast, you know, from an international perspective, we've had so many guests and, and this is like something that's really special to me as the host. Yeah you know, to have this idea to bring people on the podcast that are fighters and survivors, really survivors um, of this thing called pancreatic cancer, but from all over the world is really, really special. So it's an honor to have you on um, here coming to us from the UK. Um, The next- It's, yeah, it's a very important thing to do what you're doing, because I know from my experience of going through it, it's very hard to find positive stories around this cancer, uh, almost impossible. And that's why any opportunity I have to do things like this, whether it's, you know, my time or otherwise, I, uh, I always grasp at it. It's the same with, I don't know if you know the charity Macmillan, but I'm a victim. Um, there's not an official title for it, but I go to events for them basically. And I talk about my experience. Uh, I did a big event to Santander, the bank last week that was about 400 people. And yeah, you, you have to make time for things like, like this. And it's incredible what you're doing. Well, don't thank me. I, I'm thanking you because without you, <laughs> the story doesn't get told here. Right. I mean, yeah. Yeah, yeah. let's be honest. And you know, this is, as I was saying before we hit record, you know, this has just been an amazing way for us. You know, I've always said, as I was saying before we record, like I I get to talk to the survivors. I get to talk to the doctors. I get to talk to the participants. And sometimes that's a really challenge. That's a challenging thing to articulate that to the public. And when we always hear awareness, like let's raise awareness. Yeah. My opinion is, hey, the best piece of awareness that we can do, talk to the survivors. Yeah. Right. And this is what this podcast has become. Hopefully, as I said to you, Dan, before we hit record, like it's like this library, right? Like this, this directory of sharing everyone's journey and everyone's, you know, fight with pancreatic cancer. Cause I do know everyone handles it differently from an emotional standpoint, from a mental standpoint, but then also like this disease is so different, man. It's so it's such a complex disease. Yeah. Um, even for the 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 scientists and the clinicians that are on the front lines of finding cures and finding better treatments and early detection, that even we've seen, like from the survivorship standpoint, there there are a lot of similarities, but there are a lot a lot of differences. And I I think there's strength in sharing those stories, and there's also strength in knowing that. Hey Dan, you're not alone. 
Yeah. Because maybe there's someone in New Mexico yeah, and yeah. here in the United States that's going through that same thing and is going to find strength through your journey. Definitely. So with that, the, this, this first segment of the podcast is really the guest opportunity to share their journey with pancreatic cancer, how they got to the show today. Um, as I said, before we hit record, you can stay at a high level or you can get into the weeds and uh, I'll guide you through that, that conversation. So with that, the mic is yours, Dan. Cool. So um, I basically had some slight tightness in my abdomen. I'd describe it as it was mainly only in the, in the mornings when I woke up and it would generally go as long as I got out of bed. So I, I didn't think it was anything that serious and that was going on for about a year and a half. And I was intermittently trying to get that diagnosed, basically. Like I, I'd, I'd have a day where I'd wake up and it would be particularly like, I'd never describe it as painful, but like tight or I'd have like a, a kind of a, a bit of a stabbing sort of discomfort in my back in the morning. And, and I would be like, okay, I need to get this sorted no matter what it is. I'd go to the doctor. I'd have whatever trouble getting it diagnosed because in the UK, everything's going through the health service. I'm statistically very young for a cancer like this. Um, then they're just not looking for things like this. Um, they kind of do blood tests. They rule things out, but it would ultimately hit a wall and I would give up again. Basically it would go on for another few months and I tried to get it diagnosed probably four times. One time I actually went to a hospital uh, for an appointment. I had an ultrasound on the front, but if you know anything about um, the pancreas and pancreatic cancer, you're never going to find it doing that, basically. I didn't know this at the time, obviously, but they told me we can't see any lumps. Uh, we don't think it's cancer. So I was, I was quite happy generally. Um and I thought this was a difficult to diagnose, I don't know, something like a food intolerance or something like that. And I wasn't too worried about it. Um, things changed very quickly. So one day, um, it was about October 2021. Um, I'd been at the gym. I'd uh, been running earlier that day. I was feeling fine. Went home. I ate dinner that my wife had made me, or girlfriend at the time, wife now. And um, I just got this crazy pain all over my abdomen. I was struggling to breathe. Um, and that's really where things changed quite significantly. So for the next few weeks, this would happen not every day, but maybe, maybe once every few days or something like that at first, but then started getting more frequent. And then I wouldn't even need to eat for it to happen. It would just, like, I would be struggling to stand up straight when I was walking. Um, and at this point I went to A&E, which is like the emergency department in the, in the UK. Um, and that kicked off a big process basically where they did some blood tests. They identified that my liver functioning was very poor. They didn't know why. Uh, I got warned that they might have to do emergency surgery that day, but then I got passed into the next stage of that process, which was where you get uh, seen by a kind of specialist that night who said to me, basically, we can admit you to hospital, we can send you home and you can come back tomorrow. 
um, and we'll take it from there. So I, I went home, came back the next day, and then basically there was five weeks of me going to hospitals. Uh, they had to refer me to a different hospital because they didn't have the specialism after a week of test where they identified this wasn't something that was simple. At this stage, they were still saying it's very unlikely to be cancer, but we can't rule it out. And then eventually the turning point was uh, I got sent for a PET scan, which again, I didn't know much about this at the time, but I asked a friend of mine who's a doctor. I said, well, they're sending me for a PET scan now. And that was the first time I got uh, a bit of a reality check that this is maybe not going away soon. Uh, he basically said to me, look, I don't want to scare you, but a PET scan is a very sensitive scan. It's good that they're doing it, but they're also quite expensive and they are specifically used for detecting cancer and they will only use them where they're pretty sure that this is cancer, basically. So that was the first time that I'd really confronted the fact that I might have cancer. I was then told I did have cancer after that scan, but they told me it was a slow growing soft cell cancer they think but they need to do a biopsy to confirm that uh i had an endoscopy which is where you get a camera down the yeah. throat they took a biopsy of it and um a few days later i got an emergency call basically saying you need to come into hospital now um i was like why what's happened they told me they're not allowed to tell me on the phone basically i got um rushed into hospital i was at my parents at the time away from london because my next consultation wasn't until midweek the next week and uh this was monday so i was planning to go back later that day but wasn't in a rush to so i had to basically my sister urgently drove me the four hours from my parents house down to london we were on a time pressure because we had to get there before six because that was when the staff were going home who who were dealing with my case so we weren't sure we were going to get there in time uh i was physically struggling to talk at this stage because i was so ill but also i was so scared because you know i've had this call saying they they've got news uh and then they told me i had pancreatic cancer stage three said i need to go straight into um chemotherapy said that I need the chemotherapy to do a good job if I'm if I have any chance of getting surgery and they essentially told me that I was I was up against it essentially I was not in a good position uh and that's how I was diagnosed or October 2021 2021 yeah so this was in COVID so this is during the pandemic yep yep uh so not only are you dealing with all this but you're dealing yeah. with all that yeah it was a, uh, it was it was difficult and i think that that's probably partially why maybe it didn't get resolved earlier to be honest like yeah. you know trying to go to hospitals at that time was difficult um a common issue that i'm sure you're aware of from doing this podcast and from just generally knowing about pancreatic uh, if you've spoken to anyone who's kind of younger with it, but it's very hard to get taken seriously for this cancer when you're young. Yep. Um, so that a combination of those things, yeah, it was, it was, I mean, it was difficult. Um, and dealing with the cancer itself. I mean, so then I went into chemotherapy. I did six, well, seven months of chemotherapy because I had a few delays, yep. um, but I had to do that. No one was allowed to go on the ward with me. So you're doing that on your own, whereas usually I think you're allowed, I think it's one person on the ward with you yeah. for that. 
but couldn't have that. And then um, I had, I did get the surgery, which was um, actually very surprising <laughs> because so, even, even, yeah, sorry, go on. Yeah, no, so I just want to jump in here. So yeah, yeah. you do the chemo, when do, from October 21st, just from a timeline perspective to when yep. you're starting chemo, how long did that take? So that was actually very quick. So uh, I was diagnosed at the start of November when I actually got diagnosed because wow. it took so so long going yep. through all those tests and stuff. I was in chemotherapy um, a week and a week and four days from wow. then, basically. Yeah, yeah, it was it was really quick. So they got I think, they got you moving pretty quick once they got that official diagnosis. And they had to do a procedure in, in the bit before as well, where they had to put a uh, stent in the bile ducts because the reason I'd fallen so ill suddenly was the something had happened. Yeah, yep. basically, uh, I think the tumor had either got to a certain size or I don't know what happened, but the bile duct was then getting blocked, which was making me really jaundiced. And that was the that was the turning point. That's where I got ill and where yeah. I had to actually go to the emergency room and where they started saying, okay, something's going on here. Um, so they, they did that procedure. Uh, I got admitted to hospital upon being diagnosed. I was there for three days. They did that procedure the, the day after I was diagnosed. I was out of the hospital the following day. And then I was uh, having my first appointment with the oncology team uh, about like four or five days later. And then I was in chemotherapy three days after that. So it was quick. So you do the seven months of chemo. Yep. Yep. And then what happens then you do scans and then they come back and say, Hey, Dan, we've got great news. You're surgical, you know, you're, you're a surgical candidate. To be honest, it wasn't even that, it wasn't even that positive. It was, uh, they, they, yeah, they, they did scans and they said, um, the chemotherapy doesn't look like it's done enough. This tumor's still completely surrounding a major artery. Mm -hmm. They said, because of my age and my health, because I was running a uh, hundred kilometer ultra marathons three months before this, I ran a um, marathon one week before I went into hospital, into the emergency room, I'd done an event. Like I was really healthy at this time. Uh, they basically said to me, because of your age and health, they said, we can't not do something and see what happens. So they basically said, they're putting me forward to the surgical team anyway. They're going to see what they can do. They said the worst case scenario is they go in there. It's too difficult. They use nano knife to try and yep. kill some cells, but then basically close me up and, and we yeah. see what happens quite incredibly i woke up to the news that uh he the the surgeon said it was the biggest operation he'd ever done on a pan for for the pancreas i was in surgery for 14 hours they had to take out my entire pancreas so i had a total pancreatectomy but to get out the tumor and get good margins on it. They had to take out three fifths of my large bowel, uh, some of the stomach, some of the liver, uh, the gallbladder, um, the spleen. I think that, oh, and they had to reconstruct two major arteries as well. Um, it, yeah, that, that's what it took basically, but they managed to get the full tumor out and get 
very good margins on it. Wow. So <laughs> that is unbelievable because it is. Yeah. So you what I got to ask this question going yeah, in course. they're saying Whipple Whipple and for our audience if you've never heard, you know, this this term the Whipple, that's the main surgery for there's a couple of others like a distal that they'll do and, and other variations, but the Whipple is the main surgery for yeah. pancreatic cancer removal. So before you come out and before you go under, was there yeah. talk about total removal or was this like, hey, we're going in for Whipple and like you said, nano knife potentially if it looks good and then we close you up so there was no conversation about like hey we're going to yank this out and we're going to re redo these arteries it's going to be this complex so you're waking up and you're thinking okay either it it went well or it didn't go well but this was like a third option that wasn't even on the table yeah so uh it wasn't even broached i didn't know it was possible um yeah i woke up I mean, I can't pretend that I remember, to be honest, like I was under a lot of drugs. They had to put um, an epidural yeah, in my back I imagine. Day, yeah. day two, because basically they went in not, not thinking they were going to be doing an operation that big. But then upon going in and the surgeon deciding, okay, look, we're going to go for this, whatever it takes to, to sort it. But they didn't, um, they didn't kind of do the appropriate pain yeah uh procedures for the for the level of operation that they did yeah. so apparently apparently when my wife and my um my mum came to visit me uh the the day after i was out of surgery i was screaming in pain and they were trying because obviously to get an epidural in i'm saying obviously yeah. maybe it's not but you need it in the back correct and the surgery you know it's a, it's a huge cut across your abdomen that they do yeah they're trying to push me over on a bed to get an epidural into my back. Uh, and I was, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, it, it was a bad situation, basically. And uh, I was I was in a lot of pain, apparently. I remember it now. I remembered it at the time. But uh, I was in hospital for two and a half weeks before I got out. But then when I got out, I had to go straight back in anyway because I felt very ill. Uh, and it turns out I had, well, no, I, I had loads of problems, to be honest. It, it wasn't well, any one thing, but yeah. Dan, I can imagine that. So we've had people come on that have had Whipples and I know, so my dad had a Whipple. Yeah. He was much older. Yeah. Much, much older. I mean, he was 68 when he had his Whipple. And, but my dad was a pretty strong dude. Like he was a laborer. Um, you know, he used to sling, you know, bricks and mortar and wood and all that stuff. So he was yeah. very fit for his age. Yeah. But yeah. we know the Whipple is a no joke surgery. No. I just, when you describe what you went through, regardless of what physical shape you're in prior, this is like no joke. Um, yeah. You know, the Whipple yeah. is a no joke. And I, and, that's probably not the proper term. The Whipple is a major surgery to recover from. Yeah. I can imagine. So having a complete removal, which now I assume you become diabetic right away. Oh yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm, so I'm now, very, uh, let's it's throw a very, that. Like, yeah, it's, it's an aggressive type of diabetes Correct. as well. It's very hard Correct. to manage. Correct. Yeah. 
But then you're talking about reconstructing arteries and all the other margins that are out there, the small, I mean, this is like major, major, major surgery and there's yeah. so many moving parts. So yeah. just your, I mean, how long did that take for you to recover from where you felt comfortable <laughs> enough even moving though, Dan? Uh, it, it's honestly still ongoing in a lot of ways, but um, I'm feeling healthier now than I have in a very, very long time. But I, I've had to go back into hospital four times since coming out fully um, for various issues. Like one of the big problems I have is any surgery that's done on the bowel leaves scar tissue. Yep. That, that basically causes your bowel to, it's not even just as easy as, you know, if you, if you eat a big meal, get blocked, it, it gets caught on itself quite easily because of that buildup of scar tissue. And then if that doesn't sort itself out over time, I mean, that, that that's death, right? Like that's yeah. a serious issue. And, and that's besides the pain element of it, which is genuinely in incredible amounts of pain when it happens. And that's happened three times uh so that's so straight that, back into hospital go on that's like a bowel restriction then i would imagine that yeah basically not to get graphic here but you're getting backed up because yeah it can't yeah. pass through and when you yeah. don't have a pancreas you're not secreting the probably the the digestive i know with the whipple a lot of patients deal with the digestive issues because the yeah, enzymes yeah. that are no longer being and and this is so let's talk about this for a second. I know here in the United States, there are drugs that are used like a Creon, which yep. are like digestive enzymes that are added. Um, yeah. So I know here, <laughs> as you show the audience, you have the Creon bottle. I yeah, know yeah. here, the cost is insane. So not only, yeah. so we're talking, you know, there's a physical aspect, your plumbing's all reworked. So now you got to figure out a new way to eat, new way to do all this and hopefully your body digests it properly but then you've got this added supplement yep that i know here costs insane amount of money like insurance sometimes these copays are you know i've heard anywhere from like 1500 to like five thousand dollars a month just yeah. for the drugs that keep I you mean, digesting food properly that's where it's I, i'm i'm in a very blessed position because in the united kingdom we don't we don't pay for that Correct. And, and i have medical exemption it's unbelievable to fathom how anyone in the united states goes through this honestly i i i really feel for for people going through this there because like as you say the stress of everything is difficult enough um having to throw on the financial stresses which this has given me financial stresses there's no doubt yeah, about yeah. that like, i couldn't i couldn't work for pretty much a year uh and no companies no matter how nice they are generally um, yeah. you know they're, they're not in the business of, of propping up people for no reason right like they don't Correct. pay you to be off work for a year so i've had financial stresses with this uh if i was having to pay for my medication associated with this i I don't even know if this operation is possible when you throw in that element, to be honest. I think it's just all of it's too expensive. Like the, 
the diabetes medication is expensive, yeah. I would imagine. The Creonis, the actual surgery itself, I mean, uh, it required three different very specialist surgeons to do this. Like there was a vascular surgeon, there was a surgeon who specialized in you know pancreatic surgery. Um, there was a, another specialism that I'm not sure of, but those people, because of the NHS, are at hand. They, they yeah. can literally call another department in the hospital and say, we need you to come in, we're doing this surgery, you know, we need this type of specialist advice. I don't think that's possible if your healthcare is privatized in the same way. No, and it, it, or it costs you an insane amount of money. Oh, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah you yeah. know, like that's that's the trade-off. So you go through this surgery, you have this crazy recovery. Yep. Do they do radiation, chemo, or after, or like once you're come due, you're you're in a, a state. Do they say, hey, Dan, you know, we got everything. Everything looks good. You don't have to do any more treatment, but, you know, you've got to deal with the reality of what just transpired of removing your pancreas and all these other things that we had to reroute. So I did do mop-up chemotherapy. Um, so my, my surgery was in July uh, last year. I started the mop-up chemotherapy in, I think it was October. I had quite a big, quite a big gap, um, but the mop-up chemotherapy was three months. And honestly, even though it was a way easier regime, like during the first chemotherapy, I was in hospital every two weeks for like mm -hmm. anywhere from four to six hours for the full furanox. Mm -hmm. um, the mop-up chemotherapy was only one session in the hospital for about an hour every week and then i took tablets twice a day every day for three three weeks so it's um you go to the hospital for your infusion every friday i was doing it for three weeks in between from the first one you take pills every day for the whole of that three weeks then you have one week break it was three of those the first the first cycle was generally okay towards the end it did start getting a, a bit more tough but it was generally i was thinking oh, okay if it's this it's okay uh the second the second cycle it got bad like i, I was having to delay treatment every week because my liver functioning was bad i was struggling to eat i had to go off work stick again i'd been back for about um about six weeks i had to go off again i couldn't i couldn't handle it it, it was a real slog, but at the end of it, um, my scans were clear still. I still haven't been told that I'm cancer-free. I don't. Know, they're, they're very, they're very um, hesitant to talk in those terms with this cancer I found. I don't know if that's a common theme in this podcast or in your experience talking to people, but they always use the term "living with cancer," saying that this this cancer is bad for coming back. But I finished mop-up chemotherapy, had a clear scan. That was in February. I just had another scan um, how, two months ago or something like that. I had the results of that a few weeks ago, and I, that I'm still clear, basically. So I'm, I don't have cancer right now, I believe, but they're always using this phrase, you're living with cancer. And I think they use that five years clear mark as a it's, a it's a bit of a like okay after five years 
maybe you can start, you know, hoping, I think, is, is the way it is. I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm still figuring that out. Like why that is, I mean. You brought you asked the question, do they do that here? So I think it depends on the place, right? But so this yeah. is a narrative that we have tried to change. In my eyes, everyone who is alive is a survivor, whether you have cancer present in your body or you don't. Like I don't yeah, know. Yeah. I, I think it's kind of like this weird thing. Like I think I get it. Like society wants to like box people in, I guess, yeah. in some ways. But survivorship to me is people who are living life, you know, and, and not letting the cancer dictate how they live their life. And so yeah, it, it doesn't like, you know, it's like that thing, like it doesn't define who you are. It's just a thing that happens to you as you go through that, I guess. And I don't Definitely. know if that answers that question, Dan. Um, it's it's I, just it's just one of those things for me, I think, where it's so strange because everyone who's not been involved in cancer or who even might be involved in certain cancers or certain diagnosis, they get quite a clear line drawn between you did have cancer, but now, you know what I mean? You're, you're like post-cancer, yeah. you're in that world. And I've just never got that, that the, the language around my whole experience has always been so kind of cagey. And I do get yeah. it, especially seeing the statistics. Like, I, I understand why that might be. But sometimes I wonder, like, am I a dead man walking in these medical rooms? You know what I mean? Are they waiting for the bad thing to happen? But the, my surgeon was an amazing person. And he he is the most kind of upfront person I've met through this process and he really said to me uh, after the surgery he said you beat the odds getting the cancer in the first place you beat the odds getting the surgery with the kind of uh the the prospects from the scans you then beat the odds being in the surgery and it happening like the the result of the surgery where we actually got it out he was like there's absolutely no reason that you won't beat the odds and survive for a very long time like after this and I, I just, those words ring in my head when I'm, I'm struggling and, and that's what gets me through. But it's, it's difficult learning that, you know, it, it's not so simple. It, it's not you have cancer, you got rid of cancer, go and celebrate and live your life. Like that, that's not how it is, unfortunately. And, and maybe that's a, a kind of a, a silly way to try and view it, but... <sighs> You, you cling yeah. on to anything, you know, you just, do. yeah, <laughs> you, you know, and I think the other thing, and you just brought up a great point though, too, is, um, you know, there's also, I think as human nature, we feel, and this is again, bad on, you know, society, like, okay, you had cancer, you beat it. Now go live the way you used to live. Yeah, but as yeah. you are proof to that, like, you had cancer, you had like this major surgery that, and we'll, we'll love to, to get down on, uh, you know, talk further about this is like really changed your, you physically, uh, yeah. you know, messes with you mentally. Um, oh, yeah. But yeah. you know, you're, you, you, it's hard to go back to, you know, and I think that like, everyone wants, I guess my point here, everyone wants that story, that fairy tale ending, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. You have you have a challenge and then you're back to, you know, Prince Charming, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah. uh or yeah. you're back to like that happy ending and 
not to say that I'm not saying that there's not happy endings to this, but life is different and, and patient oh, yeah. struggle, you know, like you're, we're talking about Creon. Like, so, okay. So if you're on Creon for the rest of your life, like yeah. that's a challenge. Like a lot of people it have is. to change the way that they eat um, because of the dietary restrictions and because of yep. the surgeries that have occurred. So that, that's a challenge. Right. And there's this, this, I think there's this notion with, cancer survivorship and maybe this answers your first question you know like yeah. yeah i guess five years scientifically and i don't know the science behind it maybe i should ask that the next time i'm in one of these clinician meetings uh with yeah. a bunch of clinicians why five years instead of like hey if you have a scan and it's no evidence of disease like that should be the most important thing and yes you continue to scan the you know you continue to have continuing scans because we do know with a lot of cancers like sometimes they do come back whether it's margins or whether it's genetics right which we'll, we'll talk yeah. about here in a second as well but there's also this struggle that continues to happen you know like my yeah. mom's a breast cancer survivor two times and like she struggles with certain wow. things because of that cancer, right? Unlike yeah. pancreatic cancer patients who have Whipple's struggle with the digestive piece. So yeah. I don't know, Dan, why that five-year mark is so critical. I'm sure there's some statistical data maybe that they look at that says like, once you reach five years, we know statistically that 90% of these people um, you know, don't have reoccurrences. So that's the mark we're going to use. But I would, I would love to see the data on that because I'd love to see like what three years and four years look like as well. Yeah. Um, you know, I, is it, are, I, are we talking? I, I know that every year or, or the more time that passes, the less likely it is to Correct. come back. So I guess, Correct. I guess maybe it's just a kind of like, but why is know, five years so, so powerful though? Right. Yeah. Why isn't two? Like, good, so statistically, question. hey, let's play. Let's let's play a game here. Like, if statistically, I can see if it's twenty percent to compare to ninety percent from two years to five years. That's a pretty big. That's difference, a big right? thing. Yeah. yeah but yeah. if we're talking eighty-seven to ninety, then you know that's not a big significance, no. right? So no, no. here's for for the audience listening at home. If there's a scientist or a clinician that knows this answer, yeah. May and quite frankly, here's the other thing, Dan. Maybe they don't know. And yeah. five years is this benchmark for all cancers. And you know, this is where I go back to like with pancreatic cancer, it is so specialized, it's so niche in the sense that you need to see a pancreatic cancer specialist because it is yeah. different. You can't just go to a generalist. Um no. but I'd love to see the data on that where you could see over the years, how that, that changes statistically, because it would be interesting. And maybe that's the answer to why five years is the mark. And maybe there's not that much of a variation from five to six, but there is from five to three to four potentially. Or even like you say, it might be a really generalist benchmark that, that they use just to understand over time, how survivorships improved and stuff. And right. it, it's probably, it is likely that it's it's come from some arbitrary historic thing, really, but who knows? For the 13 years I've been in this, it's always been the five, but to your point, five years is always this arbitrary date, right? Like it's this anniversary that everyone looks forward to and that has never changed, which is kind of strange, but it's maybe another uh, another episode on a podcast to figure out yeah, why that yeah, five-year yeah. mark makes a, such a big difference. So back to your story, 
So you you've been you know clean hair for last two scans. Yep. Life has changed dramatically. Yep. Um, you did get married in the process. I picked up on that, uh, I did, which yeah. is probably yeah. a big, big moment in your life for you and your wife. What was that like for given all that you just explained to have like a moment of that in your life? So, so that, that probably is the uh, part of my journey that actually fits in with this, this kind of uh, novel style narrative that we were talking about before, where I proposed to her as literally... I got diagnosed. I, by the doctors, stood there, diagnosed me, walked out the room. I turned and I said, "Let's get married." And that <sighs> happened. That happened a few months after surgery um, in September last year. So, wow. you know, it's been what nine months or something. Um, so yeah, that I mean, it was an amazing thing to do. We were planning it throughout the treatment. It was so motivating to be doing that. Um, my family also bought me a, me, me and my uh, wife now, girlfriend at the time, a puppy to support me through chemotherapy. So we've got a little oh. uh, mi miniature Dachshund or Dachshund, as people like to say, um, who's wonderful. She's so much fun. Um, she, we, we didn't let her sleep in the bed with us for a while, but then we caved and now she literally pushes her way into my arms when I'm sleeping like uh, this and sleeps on me. <laughs> yeah, I think so my, awesome. wife, my, my wife loves her and is uh, jealous of her in equal parts, I think. <laughs> um, so there's been loads of nice things, but the wedding was, the wedding was an amazing, an amazing kind of event. Like, you know, you can imagine the speeches at things like that are emotional anyway. And then you throw in everything that had happened over the last year. And we had 120 of our closest friends and family there. And yeah, most of the room was crying during my speech, <laughs> as you can imagine. But it, it was, yeah, it was an, uh, I, I really, my advice to people fighting this is you need to, you need to find things that motivate you to get through it as much as you need to kind of, you know, actively fight it, you need to find things that actively take your mind away from it and give you reason to push through and, and, and survive that extra time because it, I, I don't know what the science is behind it, but it, it really makes a difference. Like the weeks where I felt low were horrible and I'm sure that they were detrimental in, in some ways to my health. In, just from that kind of negative headspace compared to the 95% of the time that I've managed to just fight it mentally in a way where I just get on with my life in whatever ways I can and, and look forward to things and enjoy life. Like, it's so important. I want to shift gears here, but stay on this topic. Sure. How did you get into running before? Like, what was the thing that got you into running? It was really, it's a thing in my family anyway. My dad was a big runner before he got an injury um, and then kind of switched onto cycling, but still does a lot of exercise. And he's 67, nearly 68. But he'd always instilled in us this idea that, look, exercise is, you know, it's not just a, a physical thing it's good for your your mind and that's what hooked me I think like once I once I started 
uh, running properly. I always ran intermittently when I was younger, but I, I didn't I didn't stick with it until I was probably in my early to mid twenties. And I just think that something that's stressing you out at work or in your life, um, if you go out, do a run, spend an hour, even not not thinking about it. Sometimes you don't think about anything, I think. Like afterwards, I couldn't tell you what I thought about for the run, but I just feel better about it. I feel more equipped to tackle it. I feel happier in myself. I feel like I, I kind of, you know, I've got more of a renewed sense of, of uh, a fight in me for whatever it is that's bothering me. And that's what hooked me really. And then you said you shifted, you were doing marathons and then you, you shifted to ultras, which I know we talked before we hit record. Yeah. I, I've seen that, that ultra community and, and this yeah. is a compliment. Those are some bad ass people, man. Like to yeah. go beyond 26, yeah, is pretty it's, gnarly. It's, it's a lot. It is a so, lot. So what got you going? What? what pushed you to go into that vertical? Because not everyone does that. I mean, I have a lot of friends. Some of them either like, I, I, I'm i not, maybe we put them in three groups. It's like, okay, they've done it. They're done. They do, they do and this is marathoning. They do a marathon, yeah. they're done. Bucket list, check it off. Do yeah. a marathon. Okay, now it's addicting, do more. And then you get done a marathon, but hmm. Oh, there's this other category called ultras. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they, and you can probably go into that same thing too. Like I've known people, they do one and they're like, hey, I did pass the marathon. They do more. Or now they go like, I've seen people go like really get into it and do like, I had a a guy I knew, like he did one marathon, then ended up doing, now he's up to like 50 marathons, but then he was doing ultras and then he did, you know, he got into Mount Tremblant and, you know, did those crazy endurance races, you know, where you're doing, you know, hundred plus miles over three days and you know not sleeping yeah 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 so my i think what what helps for me is my brother greg who's two years younger than me by the way he is a lunatic and i think when someone (laughs) when when you know someone who takes it a step further than you which once you get into that community you find those people anyway but mine just happened to be my, my brother so I, I didn't have to look that far for it. He, for example, last year did a double Ironman. So an Ironman is, yeah, it's, it's a brutal version of a triathlon where usually you're swimming 2.6 miles followed by a 112-mile cycle, I think it is, and then a marathon, a marathon at the end. Yeah. So he did double each of those distances all in one go. I think it's up in 20, 25, 27 hours nonstop. Um, and th- they're not flat routes. Like they, they are made to break people. He, he was doing it in Snowdonia in Wales, uh, which is a, a big, I don't know if you can call it a mountain, especially when the, like the States, you guys have some huge places, <laughs> but it's, it's big. Anyway, it's a yeah. big hill. And I think when, when you're into that community, however you get there and you see these people achieving more than you could ever have thought anyone could do right like never mind you know you read you read things in on in news articles about oh someone's broke the record run 100 miles in bloody four hours or whatever and you're like that's ridiculous like it's so far removed from you that you can't 
even contemplate it. But as soon as you meet people and you you speak to them and you hang out with them and you start to, you know, feel like, well, why why not me? I could do something like that. And I think when when you start to get that switch with anything in in life, right? Like when when you start proving to yourself that you can do something you it becomes a, a kind of self-reinforcing thing and all of a sudden yeah it, it gets on a life of its own and it, it did for me I've, I've done a lot of ultras anything from uh 60 65 kilometers up to the most i ever did was 110 kilometers and i was training for 100 miles but i've probably done over 40 easily i would say so vast running doing these extreme not extreme but like these ultras yeah best term yeah. right yeah and and that's a mental like you really need to go into like seventh gear mentally yeah so this happens often dan here on the podcast for me so i've been taking notes and just hearing your story and certain words you use in the last year, maybe it's the, since you since you started this journey. Yeah. Have you ever looked back at your experience? You mentioned your dad instilled this thing of you know being healthy and how important health was. Yeah. Your brother got you hooked on these ultras, you know, and, yeah. and doing that extreme. And again, from the physical aspect, yes, but from the mental and and. I really stress the mental because you really need, you know, anyone who's done a marathon knows it's more mental than physical. Yeah. The same could be said. I mean, yes, you do have to put in the reps. It's not like you can go out and run a hundred miles or, you know, a hundred kilometers, you know, very easily. Um, yeah. You do have to put in the, the time and the work and the, have the discipline, but there is a huge mental piece to that. Yeah what you've gone through with pancreatic cancer have you ever thought like this was the training for what you went through with pancreatic cancer i think it's it's a really interesting thing that i've had to go through to then compare it with like past you know it's so difficult because you're you're stuck in your own head and your own world and you understand uh -huh. yourself and you're ever present in the moments where you're feeling insecure, weak, when you really are losing that mental battle uh, with the cancer. You're you're so wholly aware of that experience that I think it's very difficult for me to feel like I've not accomplished something because obviously I'm, I'm not saying I, I haven't, but like yeah. I think people are so complimentary about certain aspects of, of what I've gone through and, and how my past might have aided it. And I really try and listen to them because I think it is valuable to get those insights, but I just don't, I, I almost feel like I'm a, I'm a phony in that world because I, I know that I had those nights where I lay awake and I, 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 the day before I started chemotherapy, I was so terrified that that experience was going to be, you know, like horrific. I was sat on the sh floor in my shower, just bawling my eyes out for 20 minutes, terrified. And yeah, it's, it's so difficult to truly feel like 
any of the things that helped me in in running ultras helped me get through this but like it's like i say it's it's all those micro transactions you have in your own head throughout the journey and i think the difference is is that an ultra even when it's long is 24 hours or correct. 30 hours or whatever you know correct this this is something that goes on for it's probably never going to leave me no never it, it, it's so crazy to to understand how but, you know yeah but also life is it's not always linear, right? Like there's these blips no. on the timeline. So like you yeah. have these experiences and hopefully we're learning and, you know, and, 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 and where I come from this, Dan is like, you know, again, from the, from my perspective as a listener and just listening to so many stories, like, again, not everyone runs ultras, you know, yeah, so yeah, it's yeah, this yeah. different breed <laughs> and not to say that th this is why, you know, cause if you run an ultra, you know, no, but I think yeah. it's very interesting to see personal experiences and how people maybe, you know, don't realize like those struggles that we go through early on or those lessons that we learn in the long run, how they play out in a positive way to help people get through adversity um, when yeah. adversity occurs. And yeah. um, so it's just kind of an interesting picture here that I, I've written out and some of the things that I caught on. Um, that you've mentioned. Um, I've got a couple of questions here for you. I, I know you do blog quite a bit, right? And you've been blogging about your journey. So let's talk a little bit about that and how that's yeah. been helpful for you and, and sharing your story and, and, you know, doing all that you're doing there. Definitely. Yeah. So um, it really started out as a project because I wasn't working. I didn't have loads of energy because I was on chemotherapy and I was getting a lot of messages from family and friends asking, you know, how I'm doing, what's going on. So I've always read a lot of books, both fiction and nonfiction. Um, I haven't ever tried to write in particular. I mean, I've, I've obviously I, I, I like went to uh, university or school, um, but I, I wrote a lot of essays during that time and stuff. It's not like I've never written things, but I've never tried to just kind of write. And I started doing this, this blog just to communicate kind of to family and friends how I'm doing to an extent, but also to try and connect with people because I was struggling to find people, especially anywhere near my age, suffering from this. So it was, it was a, a bit of an attempt to kind of like reach out and connect with people, which is a very common thing. I think for anyone who's diagnosed with cancer, you, a lot of people yearn for some kind of like shared experience, just as people do about any traumatic event. Um, but it started there. And then I think people were gen generally surprised that the writing was actually so good. I had a lot of people saying to me, you're a really good writer, you know, <laughs> never mind the, the fact that, you know, you're saying things that are interesting because I want to know how you are. Like you actually write very well. So it's taken on a bit of a life of its own. I think it, it, it's very max. It had a subscriber count of over 700. I know wow. I have about 400 directly to the blog now, I think. Um, not because it's fallen, because it used to incorporate how many follows you get on um, yep. social media. But yep. it's since, for some reason... And Elon Musk's Twitter has broken the link or broken something. Broken the, the yeah. bots or something. Who knows? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you can't actually connect it anymore. So I've, it 
doesn't account for those Twitter follows anymore. But yeah, it's about, I think it's 400, 450 or something. And it, it's, it's changed a bit, you know, like I don't have things to update every week about cancer anymore so much. It's got some stuff about diabetes on there. I actually just write, I have a series, which is um, the on series, which is just on a different topic each week, which is really just for me to play around creatively and write something. I've been writing a few books. I've had a few things published in magazines like short stories and stuff, which is a nice, that's quite a gratifying thing actually. Um, but it's, yeah, it's a huge interest now that really came out of this cancer experience and that it's just a nice thing to do these days. Like who knows where it will go generally, but it's, it's good to, to kind of go through that experience with something that is an outlet and that has been a huge outlet for me. It's awesome. I love it. It's just another opportunity to amplify your story, raise awareness. Um, and, and I think in a, in an important message, right? Um, because as I said before, like there's a, there's, like you said, you're now talking more about the diabetes piece and that's where I, what I mentioned before, it's like, yeah. okay, I think we're so fixated on like, Hey, cancer's over. Okay. Now they're okay. But no, there's, yeah. there's challenges, there's issues to that and yeah. you know, your age and everything that plays into that. And this is where my next question, I have two questions left, but my, my second to last question here, you've mentioned this a couple of times, 28, young, healthy, active. What advice would you give to someone, you know, maybe close in your age? Um, You know, I mean, you said for a year and a half, you had this like tightness, stabbing pain in your stomach and because of your age and because of your situation like you know no one really kind of thought hmm pancreatic cancer until you know until that crazy crazy episode there in october 21 but would you give someone advice like what what not necessarily one thing but maybe there's a handful of things like what advice would you give people to someone listening to this i I've said it a few times on different events that I've spoken at and stuff because I do the support work with Macmillan, the cancer charity. Again, I'm not sure if they operate in the US or not, but they're they're huge over here. They have actual um, representatives in the hospital that as soon as you're diagnosed, Macmillan representatives come and kind of speak to you and guide you through certain aspects of the process. And I I do a lot of talks uh, for them now. Um, You really have to take account of anything that's bothering you because generally if if it's bothering you you know it's probably a a sure sign that something is going on right and it might be a lot more difficult to do in the united states and perhaps you know it's it's a little bit um bad advice for people in in the united states because it might be very expensive to pursue things but also perhaps you can get to a, a diagnosis a lot quicker there too. Like, you know, it pro- probably has some positives um, that can weigh out some of the negatives too. But I think if you know something feels off and it's not going away and learning the symptoms of things that it could potentially be, because if I'd have read around more, not buried my head in the sand so much about, you know, it potentially being cancer, I, I might have actually 
seen some of these symptoms, like some of the symptoms for pancreatic cancer are like pains in the back, um, yellowing of the skin even, because when I when things got very bad for me and I was going into hospital, I didn't notice until after a while, but my eyes were going yellow. And even the people at the hospital, that didn't get mentioned to me. I think knowing knowing the symptoms of, of you know, these potential uh, serious illnesses can make a big difference as well because it empowers you to actually go to a medical professional and say, look, I'm not saying it's likely, but... I am displaying some things that are consistent with this disease. Can, you know, what can we do about it? And I know in the UK, if you do that, if you go to your GP, which is like, you know, the local surgery here where you get kind of yeah. minor appointments for coughs and stuff like that. If you, if you go to them and, and present to them that you're worried it is something, they are more inclined to do something about it. And I, I think maybe even they have to do something about it at that stage to at least verify it's not that so long as your symptoms are consistent with um that illness so you know knowledge is power you you just hit a home run there dan because uh you know that's we we talk about that all the time the self-advocacy right like you have to and i tell people all the time i think the challenging piece is knowing what to ask but yeah. I, I go back to that as like if you don't feel right you know your body's best right and so exactly. even that that slight like nagging pain that you don't think is a big deal it's a big deal right treat Definitely. everything as if it's a big deal especially with you know something like pancreatic cancer yeah my last question here and then we're going to share where our audience can connect with you online social wherever that place may be uh, this is always a uh, a loaded question, as I like to say, um, there's no right or wrong to this, but given your experience, what you have gone through yourself, Dan, yep. how do you define pancreatic cancer? How do you define it? I think it's a very evil, very difficult, very complex machine that unfortunately in a lot of cases at the minute, uh, seems to come out on top and that seems fairly underfunded from what I've understood compared to other cancers. Seems to get written off a lot as this cancer that only affects old people, which has this impl implied um, kind of subtext, which is that that doesn't matter. And I think when you experience it, uh, if you if you kind of care to learn about it, you realise that it is a seriously detrimental, difficult thing that needs more attention and that everyone should take a lot more seriously because even if it never impacts you, it will be impacting people that are in a network that are associated with you. And if we don't do more to tackle it, one day it just might hit your sphere. And when it does, you'll realize that, wow, this is, it's a seriously horrific thing to go through. It really is. It, it's any, any, anything that impacts that kind of digestive system, you know, that, that changes your life when you have a problem with it in a way that the very simplest, most human 
uh, impulses that you have to sit, eat, enjoy, you know, those, those raw, very instinctive things change forever when you get it. You, you'll never live the same life. And, and unfortunately, you'll probably die prematurely, perhaps very prematurely due to the, that disease. Powerful statement. Dan, for our audience listening at home, someone wants to follow along with your blog, connect with you, yep. maybe reach out to you. We have audience yep. all around the world. As I mentioned, we've had guests from many, many countries. Um, so it's vast and they come from all parts of the world. Where's the best yep. place for people to connect or to follow along or to reach out to you? So the blog is the best place to kind of just you know, see what I'm putting out there, read the backstory of, of what I've been through. Uh, it's all there. It's broken into series. There's a road to diagnosis series, which is about how I was diagnosed. There was a, a chemotherapy diary series, which was how I was dealing with chemotherapy. There's just random writings where I'm a lot more light and don't talk about cancer. Like there's a lot there. Um, and then if you want to talk to me personally, which I, I love talking to people, I think it's a great thing to do. Uh, I've met a lot of people. Some of them have actually become friends in real life through the blog, but uh, messaging me on Twitter is probably the best. So my handle is something like ebb and flow underscore blog. Yep. Uh, yep. So yeah, Twitter is the best place to talk to me directly, but the blog's kind of, if you're just interested in the backlog of the story or anything like that, that's the best place. And the, the blog is ebb slash and and slash flow dot blog. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it's got hyphens between the ebb Correct. and hyphens, flow. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, 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 that's it. So ebb hyphen and hyphen flow dot blog. Awesome. Dan, um, it's been an honor to have you here on the podcast to share your journey. And uh, I really appreciate you giving me the opportunity to, to share what you've gone through and, and hear about your story. Um, you know, you've said it a couple of times, and, and this is part of what we try to do here at the podcast is I mentioned awareness, but really yeah. bring conversations like yours. You're 30 years old, man. This is, yeah, you know, yeah. everyone thinks it's this old person's disease. And, you know, I, I don't see that. Um, no. we've had guests here in their, their early twenties. Uh, we just had someone on the podcast who's in their thirties. Um, so I have never, other than my father and, and clearly people that I've interacted, but this is not an old person's disease. Yes. Does it no. probably impact statistically more old people? Yeah. I, I guess, you know, we can say that, but just yeah. because you're 28 years old, you're an ultra marathoner doesn't mean that you can't get pancreatic cancer. And that's really the important piece here, right? Is that 100%. you could be a professional athlete in getting the latest and greatest in all recovery modalities and training methodologies, and you can still get pancreatic cancer. You can. No one's, no one's immune from it, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, thank you for coming on the Project Purple podcast. Thank you for being public and sharing your journey and inspiring people there in the UK and across the world here on our podcast. It's been an honor to have you here on the podcast, Dan. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. If you like this episode, feel free to share this episode. Make sure to follow us wherever you listen to podcasts. Make sure to follow us on YouTube. 
Thanks for listening to the Project Purple Podcast. That's a wrap of another episode.